Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Stagecraft, Variety's theater podcast, taking you backstage and behind the scenes with the stars and creators of the hottest shows on Broadway, off-Broadway, and beyond. I'm your host, Gordon Cox. On this episode of Stagecraft, I'm talking to director, producer, and writer Sam Mendes. He's the busy film director behind a string of movies, including American Beauty and two Bond films, Skyfall and Spectre, as well as TV projects like Penny Dreadful. But theater audiences got to know him before that thanks to his influential tenure as artistic director at London's Donmar Warehouse, and, especially, to his award-winning revival of Cabaret. After it premiered at the Donmar, he teamed with co-director and choreographer Rob Marshall to bring the show to Broadway, where it played for a total of seven years in two different runs. He's back on Broadway this season as the director of the hit play The Ferryman, but that's not the only thing bringing him to New York lately. Next up is the Lehman Trilogy, an Italian play about the American financial services institution that famously declared bankruptcy in 2008. After a run at London's National Theatre last year, the play lands at New York's Park Avenue Armory this spring. Hey Sam, thanks for joining me. It's a great pleasure. It's <laughs> nice to see you. Yeah, nice to see you. Um, so now you've always got a lot of plates spinning at once. You've got across genres, like not just theater. You've got a couple of theater things going on right now, which we'll talk about. But you've also got some movies happening and some TV projects and stuff. And before we start talking about sort of the individual stuff that you're working on right now, how do tell me a little bit about how you think about how theater fits into kind of overall your activities uh, and into your career? Um, well, I'm a theater person, really. That's how I think of myself. Um, I take vacations uh, uh, in the movies and uh, they're long and extremely hard-working vacations but nevertheless that's how they feel a little bit um, it's partly is it because they're so fun that they're vacations yeah are... <laughs> uh, maybe sometimes yeah. uh, most of the time they're more like working vacations right. yeah. <laughs> uh, they are um, uh, you know b by definition movies take you away from you know, your home. You're often shooting on location. You're shooting outside of uh, places that you're familiar with. Whereas theatre for me is very familiar. It's very comfortable in terms of its environment. Um, the work can be challenging, sure, but you don't always have to leave home um, and work such antisocial hours. So movies for me, um, where I want to go when I feel a little trapped or a little claustrophobic in the theatre. 
Um, and theatre is where I tend to want to go when I feel a little exhausted um, and uh, over-travelled um, in movies. And I'm lucky enough to be able to go back and forth. But for me, theatre is where I was returned to. And, um, uh, you know, well, I, I can imagine myself directing plays into my 80s. I can't always imagine myself directing movies, you know, if I last that long. Yeah. <laughs> And so when you first started directing for the screen, what did you find that your time in theater made you good at when directing films? What did that sort of, what groundwork did that lay for you? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think that at the end of the day, you know, without wanting to be cliched about it, you're a storyteller. And, you know, hours and hours spent sitting with audiences, telling them stories and beginning to understand uh, how to shift rhythm and to hold attention and divert attention uh, and to change the rhythm of a two and a half hour story, but to treat it as a unity was very, very helpful when I came to do movies. Um, that experience of sitting with audiences and learning from them and learning from my own mistakes too was something I carried over. Obviously, there are other similarities, working with actors, working with script, but the scripts by their nature are very, very different. And I think the best movies are as far away from theatre as maybe two art forms can be. Uh, it's perfectly possible to make an almost wordless film um, and a great almost wordless film. It's very difficult to do that in an environment <clears throat> which is based entirely on the spoken word, which is theatre on the whole. Um, so there are, there are great similarities, but there are huge differences as well. And I think the big difference, and I know it sounds very obvious, but it, it sometimes... Um, needs to be said that film operates in 360 degrees and theatre is mostly constructed to be viewed from one perspective and that is a big difference um, and I've seen many films directed by uh, theatre directors who seem to have forgotten that you can look at the, <laughs> the scene from angles other than the fourth wall right. you know and I think that is a big a big uh, shift it's not to say you can't obviously have very clear point of view in, in movies and you can't shift between the subjective and objective gaze um, but on the whole it's a much more immersive medium movies and 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 it's a much less formal um, you know that the, there are no rules I find there are less rules in film than there are in theatre and what did you find then what did you find most challenging those first you know, the first time you directed your first few films, what did you find you needed to sort of train yourself uh, to? Um, oh, all sorts of things. I mean, mm. there were all sorts of things I had to learn very, very quickly. Um, how light is different, very different mm. uh, in film than it is in theatre. Uh, although, you know, you do have to make those decisions as where the light's coming from, where your light sources are, mm. uh, how to direct background, uh, you know, how to modulate and control performance. They're not projecting over, you know, to the back row of a large Broadway house. They're, they're you know, the camera's often inches from their face. How the camera observes and can be drawn in to someone in stillness in a way that it can't on stage. Um, how it's possible to... Um, how can I put this trick an actor into giving a performance on film and you cannot do that on stage <laughs> because they have to repeat it right. and therefore they have to understand what they do. In fact, what you're doing most of the time with an actor on film is discouraging them from using their outer eye. Don't look at yourself. Don't monitor yourself. Don't check yourself. Simply be. Mm. Well, by definition, 
in rehearsals for a play, what you're doing is asking them to do that and monitor themselves at the same time mm. because they have to repeat it the next day and the next day and the next day. There's a reason why the French call rehearsals repetition. You know, it's just repeating it. Whereas there is no such thing in movies. You, you're looking for, let's say you do eight takes, you want each one to be different. Or you're looking for one particular thing, and you may have that after the third take, and then you start experimenting and maybe trying out a few things just in case there's a better op- option, which often there is. So you're, you're very, it's very, very different in that respect. And then when shifting back to stage work, how do you find that the work that you've done in film influences the way you think about theater and how you approach it? Uh, I think it influences the way that uh, I think theatre should move. I think that you get very bored in film or very used to being able to jump over connective tissue, shoe leather, if you like. Mm. Um, You know, you can go from, I mean, the, the old adage in film is get out of a scene as soon as you can and get into the next scene as late as you can. And so all the the sort of, letters between you know a and e are unnecessary you can jump straight from a to e so you get very bored in the theater of having to of scene changes and having having a sense of waiting for things uh it's very it's 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 very laborious sometimes theater very heavy and concrete if you're not careful and i think i've become much less fond of moving scenery (laughs) than i was before i did movies because you feel like story you know, you, you you need less, weirdly. So it's it's interesting that going out into the world of movies where you have you encounter a much more literal environment makes you want to make work in the theatre that's much less literal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about Ferryman, which uh, is a big hit and is doing so well here in the States that uh, you have to get some more actors to go be in it. And <laughs> uh, who you're working up, with right now. Round them speaking. up on the streets. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Exactly. Um, and those, there are some great actors in that cast. They include Brian Darcy James, who's taken over for Patty Considine. And it's a story that's pretty steeped in Irish history set in Northern Ireland during the Troubles. And were you surprised that American audiences have responded to it in the way that uh, we did? I think I was surprised that all audiences have responded to it, English as well, uh, British rather. Uh, you know, I, I always felt it was a great play. And I use that word, you know, very selectively, um, uh, you know, when you've worked on, you know, the the greatest drama ever written, whether it be Shakespeare or Chekhov or Ibsen or whoever, you know, you 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 know the difference sometimes between promising and um, uh, ambitious new plays. But this is the real thing. I mean, this is a play that, as a director, stretches me, stretches every performer, answers every question the actors could have about their characters within the play itself fully imagined detailed extraordinary piece of work and to, to read that coming from a contemporary an old friend indeed um is incredibly moving and and a little bit i'm a little bit awed but by, by that in jazz by his ability so uh i always found it this is Jez Butterworth, we should say. I'm not sure I've said his full name yet. Correct. Uh, yes. Jez yeah, <laughs> Butterworth, the playwright. Yes. The playwright, the author of, of The Ferryman. And yeah. so um, uh, I was uncertain when we opened whether it would be, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's so ambitious on so many levels, whether, whether it would find a more uh, mainstream audience, effectively, whether it would be able to communicate, um, you know, uh, across um, 
many different strata of people who come to see it. And and that's what surprised me. So I I felt very hopeful, having witnessed that happen in London, that it might happen again in New York, you know, which is a town more steeped in the traditions of the great family dramas, the great po- poetic naturalism of O'Neill, mm-hmm. you know, of, of and Tracy Letts, um, Miller. You know, th- these plays for me uh, have slightly more in common than some of Jez's English forebears. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it seems to me to have roots in those playwrights and and in people like Brian Friel and Shauna Casey, all of whom have had terrific lives in New York with New York audiences as a large, obviously, Irish community. But the tradition of the big family drama, you know, uh, is something that I'm more aware of in New York than I was in London. So I was hoping that it would tap into that desire for story, desire for the big, epic, um, you know, uh, family experience, as it were. And and that seems to be what's happened, which has been fantastic for, for everybody. How did you... How did you first get involved in it? How did you know, how do you know Jez? And when did you, you mentioned he was an old friend. Jez was a couple of years below me at university mm-hmm. and uh, I've known him for a long time. I mean, I met him properly around the time of his first play, Mojo, which he wrote when he was in his mid-20s. Um, yeah, that was and, when the mid-90s, I guess, yeah, thereabouts? Right? Yeah. yeah, so that was probably 20 to 25 years ago. So, um, and we remained good friends over the years and um but jez had had a um a very very fruitful collaboration with another director ian rickson who'd done his plays uh incredibly well and yeah. uh, broadway audiences saw um uh, jerusalem directed by exactly directed rickson. by ian rickson who and that was a fantastic production a, a really memorable evening that i've never forgotten and um and so i had, <clears throat> had always remained friends but we hadn't had a working relationship on stage when i came to do my last two movies both of which were the, the last two bond movies skyfall and specter i had enlisted jazz as a writer um a little bit like i always think that you know directors of those movies on those scale on that scale are like football managers um you know you you have a team of writers you sort of bring on substitutes at various points where people get exhausted you know and that's uh, so jez was a substitute uh, he, yeah. he came on in the last in the last quarter as you you guys would call it mm. um and uh and he did brilliant work and so we'd seen each other a lot and he'd been writing and um for one reason or another uh, you know, he, he'd written this play and we were at a football match together and uh, he brought the script along with him. It had coffee stains on it. It was incomplete. And he said, would you have a look at this for me? He didn't say, would you do it? You know, um, and and I said, I'd love to, you know, what is it? And he said, oh, it's, well, it's an attempt at a new play. And uh, I read it on the train the next day and I just thought, immediately thought this is a, I mean, I did use the word masterpiece, which is not a phrase, a word I use very much. Or I think it's a sort of, in a way, it fools errand to find something that is perfect, you know, and it isn't perfect. I mean, but it is unbelievably successful in its ambitions. And it was even then. That is despite the fact that the last act finished about halfway through and he just had a paragraph of description as to what was going to happen. And if you see the play you'll know that that paragraph is pretty intense. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> I was like, holy shit, you're going to do all that in the last 20 pages of this play? So I said, well, you know, let's do a read. You know, I'd love to do it. And he said, well, I'd love you to do it. And then we did a reading. 
Um, and it went well. We did another reading. In fact, we did three readings, which was incredibly important uh, for the genesis of the play. And in that time, he finished it, obviously. And then we refined it, and then we refined it again in rehearsals. And it was a, it was a tricky rehearsal process. Uh, it was one of the more difficult rehearsals I've ever done. It, it was. It, I kept saying to people at the time, it's like a box of frogs. You know, there are so many moving parts. You just think you've got all the frogs in the box and you know one jumps out and you're chasing that one and another one jumps out right. and and that that's what it felt like because we have you know as you know yeah. babies four kids uh animals we have a goose we have a bunny rabbit and all sorts of other things it's, it's true and that's actually one of my questions is <laughs> you mentioned you just you called it an epic a sort of family epic and along the lines of o'neill but there's also sort of a massiveness to the scale of just the production in terms of the number of people and the you know the, the zoo that comes on and things like that <laughs> what how is that integral to the story and the storytelling of it because um, I could imagine another producer uh, having saying to you, you know, oh hey, can you cut cut you know, the animal, the geese, cut the livestock, from exactly. one of the bunnies, you know? Yeah, yeah I don't know. <laughs> and can we do a can we do a puppet baby? Or yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, all credit to Sonia Friedman and and the Royal Court and um, Neil Street and all the other people who helped produce right. the show because nobody ever ever questioned that, yeah. and um, which was which was significant. But I think that's where you know having Jez having a bit of a track record, but uh, you know that's where it helped. Yeah. But there, there is also a kind of um, balls out theatricality to the play, which uh, you have to, as a as a director at least, embrace the potential chaos of it mm. and marshal that chaos. But there's always an element of the unknown. I mean, the goose will shit on the stage. You know, the baby will cry and 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 yell. You know, the rabbit will, as it does piss all over the apples that are stored in the same pocket which he then oh. has to hand out to all the kids to eat right so this right. is but but you know if you try and control that stuff it's a it's you know you're on a hiding to nothing so you learn very quickly but but it's very deliberate as well i mean very early on in the play jez does something that even i question when i was rehearsing it which is that uh our central two characters uh um Quinn and Caitlin are are staying up late drinking whiskey and listening to the Rolling Stones and they're debating uh, which band they would save uh, out of Led Zeppelin, the Stones and the Beatles um, if they were in a lifeboat and they, if the, the boats... You'd you know, only choose one band. You'd right? only choose yeah. one band, exactly. And the light, uh, they're, they're smoking and there's candles around the place and the lamp on the table bursts into flame and they both ignore it uh, because they're more interested in the argument than the fact that one of their lamps is burning. And I said to Jess, do you, do you really want me to make the lamp burst into flames? He said, yep. And uh, an interesting thing happens very early on there, which is uh, there is always a frisson in the audience. Is that supposed to happen? You know, mm-hmm. something's on fire. And then they very quickly realize, oh, no, it's, it's intended. And then, you know, sure enough, after a couple of, you know, 30 seconds, one of the characters gets out a fire extinguisher and puts it out. But there's a sort of weird bond that happens after that with the audience, which is, in a sense, okay, if if you can do that, I'll, I'll I'm in. Right. Uh, and he uses the animals like that too. Yeah. Um, that's a real goose, you know. And it, th- there's something, un- there is no sense in which that goose knows it's in a play. I know it sounds absolutely <laughs> ridiculous, but it's the same with the baby. Right. That just There's something about real life on stage. There, there's a sort of, and it makes a strange and unusual bond with the audience, unlike anything I've ever experienced, because I've never had a baby in a, a play before. I mean, I've you know, used one in a movie, but that's quite different. 
um, you know, because the, you're occupying the same space as the child, the same space as the animals. They're breathing the same air as you, and you know that they're innocent creatures. And that is a really amazing thing that he's managed to achieve in the first act. Mm. Um, that sense of of un you know of unstoppable life force you know of just the kind of fecundity and the, the and the plenty of family life in a farm and the smells and the noises and the shit and the piss and the crying and the nappies and the and the food smells you know we cook a meal you know you can smell the the bacon frying you can smell the goose in the beginning of act two being cooked the goose that you've witnessed alive in act one and which by the way has a has a symbolic import as well mm. uh, in the play. So all of those things add up to something that's perhaps a little bit more than your average play. Yeah. And when you, this is a thing you've done before, but you're in town now working on putting this, these new cast members in and sort of, uh, and it, the production is in a way already a remount of a show you'd done before in London. Um, do you enjoy that process of revisiting a work like this? And what do you find that you get from well, I was a bit, yeah, I was a bit ambivalent about it to begin with. Uh, I, I, I'm not a big fan of, you know, reheating yesterday's meal, if you know what I mean. Um, but it didn't feel like that at all, actually. Mm. I really, really enjoyed re-rehearsing the, the first Broadway company, who was really, in essence, the first London company right. again. They played it for a long time. They had the confidence of it. They knew what they were doing. Um, and, you know by necessity when you're in rehearsals for a play a new play you're making changes up to the last minute you're adding rewrites in you're kind of there's a few little band-aids around the place trying to piece together something that is you know you put a cut in here and those things are still kind of remembered when you first open when you come back to it after a year they've all gone it has its own integrity it feels like a unity uh and suddenly you can start working in greater depth and i i i feel and have felt that this first Broadway company was the best the play's ever been. Mm. Uh, and that was because of the enjoyment and the the, the pleasure we all uh, took in working in that level of detail when we, we got to New York. Um, even though it's the largest stage it's ever been on. And and sometimes, you know, initially that was a challenge. Uh, but I feel like across the board, it, it's been really a happy experience. How hard is that accent for American actors? No harder than for English actors. Really? In fact, in some okay. ways, less hard. I would say because it, it has more in common with your with 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 a you know. Oh. I mean, it, it's interesting. The the ear is not. Um, the the English accent is further away. I think. Um, Are there elements to the story or kind of to the historical context of the play that uh, I don't know required more explanation or? thought or understanding on the part of the American actors that are now being worked in? I think everyone needs to know, you know, to know the background of the play. If they're working on it, they need to understand the time of the hunger strikes and, and what Thatcher was doing at that time, the kind of standoff between the English government and, and, um, and what was happening in Northern Ireland and the IRA. So that, that's a sort of basic tenet as mm-hmm. what you do when you begin rehearsals. But there have been no adjustments to text right. at all. Um, and and certain things get used to get laughs, a kind of knowing laughter in in London. Just the sound of Margaret Thatcher's voice, for example, right. a kind of you know frisson of mild disgust <laughs> <laughs> seemed to travel around most of the audience. And here it's different. You know, you don't you don't get that feeling, but you have other things that the, the U.S. audience finds much funnier. Um, and it's certainly a very f- 
I think, very funny play and and very um, and very accessible. Yeah. Uh, let's let's talk now about the Lehman trilogy, which um, you will be working on. You will, another play you are revisiting uh, yeah. here in New York. Um, that is sort of a fascinating uh, project in that it comes from an Italian playwright, and then it was it's about this like really American institution, and yes. it was first done in London. How did it get to you, and what uh, what well, did you? It- what did you discover in it? In, in many ways, it could not be more different from the ferryman, which is, you know, all about detail and um, behavior and uh, subtext. There's very little subtext in this play. <laughs> the play, that, as it came to me, well, I was working on the last Bond movie and I r- was feeling homesick. I was in Mexico City and I r- was reading The Guardian online and I read an obituary of the uh, Italian theater director, Luca Ronconi. Mm-hmm. Um who were, I had met a couple of times and, and uh, who was a magnificent grand old man at the theatre, if you like. Uh, and it said in his obituary that his last production had been something called the Lehman Trilogy. Now, I had lived in New York for seven, eight years. And while I lived here in the late 2000s, uh, we had experienced the crash. And the Lehman collapse was something that had fascinated me at the time. And I actually tried to make a film about Um and toyed with doing uh, what then became uh, smartest guys in the room, or is that is that what is? Oh uh, yeah, the, the uh, HBO. Uh, yes, I'm not going to remember. I, I think that's it. The smartest yeah. guys in the room. I right. Think right. I think that's yeah. what it was. That's what it became. Anyway, I didn't, um, but I remained fascinated, and I it just popped. I thought that title sounded amazing, and I'd not heard about it, so I tried to get the play. It didn't exist in English. We commissioned a literal translation, and what came back was 280 pages <laughs> of blank verse in, in in literal translation with no speakers. There were no listed speakers at all. It was just an epic poem. And I thought, this doesn't make sense. How, how did he do this as a stage production? So I did a little bit of research. And it turned out, according to Stefano, who is the writer, that he wrote it as a as a chunk of text. And it was up to the director and the actors how many people performed it and how it was performed. Which is not a, which is a novel way to That's approach a play, true. but nevertheless, so you imagine if someone were to hand you *The Wasteland* by T.S. Eliot and say, right. "Make a play out of this," or *or Under Milk Wood* by Dylan Thomas, uh, you do it. You decide who says what and how you mount it. Um, which, of course, is a red rag to a bull for a theatre director. It's yeah. like, well, that means I have carte blanche in a sense. <laughs> um, so we then did a series of workshops of it at the National Theatre Studio, and I started with twelve people, and then I went down to nine. And I ended with three. Um, nobody had ever done the play with three people. The original had been done with 12. But there was something beautiful about this idea that the three original brothers, the three Lehman brothers who arrived from Bavaria in the 1840s, Henry, Emmanuel, and Maya, uh, end up playing their own children and grandchildren and every other character in the play. Um, and it seemed to be a poetic construct that matched the sort of broad... Um, daring poetry of the play itself which attempts to take 160 170 years of you know uh, Lehman family history including right up to the, the eve of the crash and do it in in, in one evening um, and so that's what it is it's three men <laughs> playing any uh, great number actors of different... we should say they are Simon Russell Beale and Ben Miles and Adam Godley and New York audiences will know them as well as great audiences we've seen them Correct. Around a lot, yes. Yes, and they're absolutely fantastic. I mean, they are. It, it's in many ways a celebration of their extraordinary dexterity and brilliance. How many roles do they each play? 
Well, I think it, technically, I think Adam. Are there Brody, even roles? Actually, that's a good. Well, <laughs> they are. I mean, yeah. he plays probably over forty characters, yeah, uh-huh. um, but then you know that would include twelve women in very quick succession right. and ten eight-year-old boys. Right. In very quick succession, for example. Um, <laughs> I mean, and that is the joy of it, is what's the most sort of mercurial, um, you know, uh, brilliance of of their playing. But at root, it's it's really about tradition. It's about religion. It's about what you hand on generation to generation, how it, it gradually diminishes and is eroded. Um, but also the things that we labor under all the time. You know, mm. how has it got like this? How have, how have, have we got in a situation where we literally cannot survive without financial institutions? You could not survive. You or I, Gordon, could not survive without a bank. You know, um, how did banks come to be? How are they created? Why do we get to the point where it's it's in the, in the words of one of the characters in the play, uh, banks are like breathing. You know, uh, you 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 cannot exist without them. You know, someone if you, if you have a friend who keeps his money under the mattress in cash, you think he's a weirdo, right? Do you know anyone like that anymore? No, that there is. So, um, and how have they got so much power? And how have they remained unchecked ultimately? Um, and what are the little forks in the road that um, that existed between uh, the mid, you know, eighteen forties when they arrived as <clears throat> shopkeepers in Montgomery, Alabama, and to the point where they they are part of the most significant financial crash in history, really. Right certainly the one that affected us the most. So all of those questions are attempted to be not exactly answered, but asked. And when you put them in the course of one evening, you begin to detect and sense the shape of history in a way that you just don't if you treat it in a more literal manner. And so what it's doing is trying to unearth the kind of iceberg beneath the water, you know, um, of how these vast institutions came to be and what, what basic human needs they fulfilled. And at what point did greed and avarice p- perhaps take over? Uh, what point did it get out of control? So all of those things, um, and it's but it's not it's not a polemic, you know. It's not didactic. It's not pointing the finger. It's not blaming people. In many ways, it treats them with great dignity and respect. Um, and certainly, the reason they came to be is treated with utter seriousness. It's it's what happens when you lose the direct contact with the people that you're doing it for direct contact you don't see them anymore you don't speak to them anymore what happens as the people you're serving get further and further away uh, and you have less and less contact with them i suppose that's the big question do you anticipate it landing differently here in the u.s than uh, it did for gosh yes i think so i mean look there were lots of americans who saw it in england and, and um uh, but you know we are right in the middle of it here, and it, in many ways it's a it's a hymn to New York as well. It's a it's a love a love letter to the possibility, the limitless possibility of this city, and uh, the sense of what it represented, particularly in the twentieth century, uh, which I think you know that moment in many ways has passed for, for New York. I'm not saying it's not obviously full of potential always, and it always will be, but. That moment when it really was uh, the the center of something, or, or it embodied something that was that was um, a pure twentieth century dream. That moment, I think, in many ways, has passed. And um, but you know, it, it, it's uh, yeah, it's a it's a love letter to this place. So I hope it will be treated differently, and I hope it will be, I'm sure, debated. I mean, um, uh, you know, it's not uh, how can I say this? It's not 
strictly accurate. It doesn't try and tick every box. It couldn't possibly in in three hours, you know, do justice to 160 years of of uh, financial of, of, of history and and the the financial landscape of New York. So by definition, it, it it is a poem really, and it should be treated as such an epic poem. But it it's certainly going to have people, I hope, talking about it. While you're working on these two shows, you've also got a movie project uh, going pretty strong uh, and, and will be out fairly soon, as I recall, right? Uh, end of the yeah. year, yeah? Exactly, uh, yes. This is, this is Don't a film remind called, me. Yeah, <laughs> this is a film called 1917. What can you tell us about? Mm. Can you tell us well, anything about it? The first thing to say question. is it sounds like I'm, I'm, I'm a sort of masochist in that I m- managed to construct a year where I've got both <laughs> these plays coming to New York and I'm doing a movie at the same time. It wasn't meant to be like no, this. I, it never is. Yeah. <laughs> I would, I, you know, since my last movie, I've only done two plays, you know, right. it's just that I, neither of them will die. <laughs> they both keep going, right. which is a lovely problem to have. So I'm very lucky, but at the same time, obviously I'm trying to juggle this movie, which is a huge and, um, an extremely complex undertaking. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, um, I wrote it myself. Uh, yeah. And this is the first time you've written something. Is that, yes. Yeah. And, Tell, tell us about that. Well, uh, in, in, it sounds strange, but in weirdly, that was brought on, or I was given the confidence to do it by doing the Bond movies. Hmm. Not because I wrote large chunks of the Bond movies, or I wrote the odd line, um, but because I really was in the room with the writers while they were developing it and steering with them, steering them with the movie every step of the way. And that put me much closer to the writing process than I think I've ever been before. I tend to, as a director who doesn't write or doesn't commonly write i'm i'm you know prey to whatever script happens to hit my desk at that time and 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 hope that it chimes with things that i'm thinking or wanting to say but you know that that doesn't always happen and and it happens less and less as you you you've done more and more you know you 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 can't do a war movie anymore you can't do a gangster film you've done one or you've done a two suburban movies you don't want to do another one so you know your 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 possibilities are limited and of course um so I, I ended up um, I ended up having the confidence from those two movies to think about writing. And I had a story that was a fragment uh, told me by my grandfather uh, who fought in the First World War. And it's the story of a messenger who has a message to carry. And that's all I can say. But it... it it lodged with me as a child this story or this fragment and I obviously have enlarged it and changed it significantly but it has that at its core and remains the case that it's a it's a very simple story in a way but it's a very complicated situation and um, uh, it, it's called 1917 it's set in the First World War and, and, and it'll be out this Christmas and you know it's a it's a big experiential immersive uh, movie, I hope, and you know it has uh, a wonderful cast, which I can't quite announce yet. And um, uh, Roger Deakins is shooting it, you know, uh, and and you know it has a an A team uh, crew, which I'm very very thrilled about. And and uh, yes, it's my first time back on a film set since uh, since Spectre, which was nine, which was twenty fifteen, which was four yeah. years ago. Right. Yeah. As in general, as your projects come to you, are there ever the projects that could go either way in terms of what genre they end up being? Like, could one, could this have been a play? Could 1917 have been a play, for I can, instance? I know, I can, I can say with 
with absolute certainty this could not have been a plan okay. <laughs> and, and and you know what's interesting is that you get drawn i i find myself more and more drawn to the things in movies that you can't do on stage um and the things on stage that you can't do in movies i mean you know the, the idea of making a movie of the ferryman for example which is three hours of you know one room basically yeah. that's not so exciting as a film right. <laughs> but it's certainly exciting in my opinion as a play right. And similarly, you know, it works the other way with movies. So, no, I don't. I I tend to find that that I I seek out the things that are different from from one from the other. Yeah. And what's your next stage project? Do you know? Do you have anything on? Uh... You know, I don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, I I had Lehman was always there mm-hmm. as something I was developing and working on and and sort of you know noodling with and and trying to find the right form, um, and that. And the ferryman both had a lot of work before we we put them on. Um, I, you know, I hope I hope Jez will write another play soon. Um, I'm certainly working hard trying to persuade him. Hmm. Uh, one thing I would say is I've loved doing new, two new plays. Uh, yeah. um, I love the feeling, and I know it sounds very obvious, but I love the feeling that you get in an audience when they don't know what's going to happen next. And I think after 25 years of directing revivals and uh, you know, classic plays. Yeah. It's very, very lovely to not really feel an audience judging. Um, you know, there's there's a dialogue, isn't there, when you, you do a Shakespeare, which is, you know, they're watching the play, but they're also watching the production. They're right. watching the commentary on the play. And I'm, I've loved just doing the play. Yeah. Uh, that was, that sort of answers my next question, which is, <laughs> are there any classic musicals left? Because you've done it. You did a, a lot of them for a while, uh, like Cabaret, that you would be interested in taking another look at or... Um... I I don't think there are that many yeah. uh, that haven't been done pretty damn well recently, um, or I've already done them. You've done them, yeah. You know I was going to say there was <clears throat> And uh, so I and I wouldn't say that's my. That's always it's not always been my happy space. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. uh, I loved cabaret. I mean, that was a great experience for me, um, and it's a product one of the few productions that I still miss. You know. Um, which is why I, I allowed it to be and helped revive it um, a year or two ago with with Alan Cumming and Michelle Williams, yeah. and then and then Emma Stone, and then Emma Stone yeah. Sienna Miller. After that, and that that was very pleasurable to revisit that for a couple of years. Um, the other show I I loved that we did at the Donmar many years ago was was Company, yeah. um, but again that's been superlatively well revived by Marion Elliott and with mm. with a with a with a significant twist at the center of it. So yes. we, we anticipate seeing that over I, here at some point. I yes. would hope so. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, so, yeah, I mean, uh, but I, I don't, I don't think of, oh, it sounds uh, like you're a new work guy now. Yeah. I am. Yeah. I just come to me with your new place. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> All right. Well, it was great chatting with you. Thanks for, thanks for taking the time. I it's a great it. pleasure. It's a yeah. great pleasure. Well, thank you. That was Sam Mendes, the director of Broadway's The Ferryman and of The Lehman Trilogy, which runs March 22nd through April 20th at the Park Avenue Armory. If you like what you've heard on this and other episodes of Stagecraft, don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes and subscribe wherever finer podcasts are dispensed. Until next week, see you at the theater.
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.